Welcome back. It's EGAT, and we are getting close to actual football. I'm excited. Kevin, my partner, is excited. And uh, you guys, it looks like college football is going to happen, and I'm pretty fired up. And we're also fired up about the people who support this podcast. One way you as listeners can support us is by going to iTunes, rate and review the podcast. If you enjoy it, go ahead, add a few comments. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you'd like to see more of. Let us know what we're doing well. And uh, give us five stars. It helps us tremendously. And it's your way you can contribute. The other way you can help yourself, you're not just helping the podcast, but you're helping yourself, is to support our sponsors. Uh, First, we'll start with Gabe Winslow and his mortgage realty team. Uh, I should say his mortgage brokering team. He is on the verge of having some really good news that I can't wait to share with you guys. That's going to have great benefits for our listeners. Uh, I've got to hold off on that for a little bit for things to get finalized. But for now, just know that he is the best at what he does. That's why we're partnered with him. You can call Gabe if you're in the market for a new home or if you want to take some money out of an existing home with a refi or you've got some investment properties and you want to do some shuffling around and get some money out of it and do some different stuff. This is a great time to do it. 832-557-1095. You mention me or Kevin or this podcast, Gabe is going to give you $500 off of your closing costs, no questions asked, and he's going to beat any other competitive bid that's recent, of course, can't be from uh, 2017, any recent bid that you have from a competitive lender, he's going to beat it. And the reason he can beat that is because some of the good news that I'm going to be able to announce coming up soon. So give Gabe a call, 832-557-1095. And then you can also support our other sponsor. That's fiduciary financial advisor, David McClellan. Uh, David is based physically in Austin, but he has a nationwide clientele. His background speaks for itself. If you want to put plug old David McClellan and Forum Financial in the Google machine, and I think you'll be very impressed by the width and breadth of his experience in the financial industry. He is here to serve you in a time of uh, some financial unrest, and David is tremendous at what he does. He's a UT champion swimmer, and he has got a championship financial mind. Kevin, how do they reach old D. McClellan? Oh, they reach him at 312-933-8823, or you can email him, dmcclellan at formfinfin.com. That's it. Well, hey, we got our blocking and tackling out of the way, and that's a fitting segue for the Chris Ash Zoom press conference that was just had moments ago. I am going to give you some Chris Ash Chris Ass. Whoa, easy there. <laughs> hopefully, the defense, hopefully the defense is not ass this year. Chris uh, Ass. But, I hope it's not that. Yeah, well, California's in ashes right now because of forest fires. I know. Uh, Are you okay? Uh, we're okay here. Almost had to drive down to Palo Alto and, and uh, go grab my son because they were worried about the wildfires actually coming into Palo Alto. But, uh, yeah, everything's good here, but the – the, the metaphor of what's happening to California is the physical reality of what's happening to California right now. Uh, it's a little ashy around here, uh, but we're looking for a little better sort of ash in, in Austin, Texas, leading and coordinating the Longhorn defense. I'm going to read some of his press conference quotes, and I want you to react to them. Is that fair? Let's do it. Let's do it. Here is the first thing he said, and uh, – I don't know. It tells me something that he under, he's got some self-knowledge and he understands why he's here. Chris Ash, the first thing he said, it all starts for me. It's not about X's and O's. It's about the fundamentals. 
We want a defensive unit who plays really hard. We want a defensive unit that plays with outstanding fundamentals. Kevin. Uh, it's not, it looks like he uh, watched some tape from last year and, and probably saw a lot like we had talked about on this podcast that these guys fundamentally aren't sound and they're kind of running around like robots. You want to get fundamental football players out there and then you can split. Hey, Kevin, uh, just to correct you there, all new coaches coming in and all new coordinators coming in, they don't watch any tape from the previous year. Are you aware of that? Yeah, I, yeah, I'm aware of that. I mean, that is the biggest load of bullshit that we've been fed. And they continue to feed it to everyone. I mean, remember Tom Herman came in and said that. I love the journalists that just dutifully write that. Oh, yeah. no, wow, that's interesting. Everyone's starting from a fresh slate. Okay. Wow, he, he didn't watch any of his personnel play last year. That's, that's interesting. Well, well, here's the other thing, too, is that they say it, and it's one of those things that if you said that, I mean, talk about being negligible. That's one of those I hear that, and I think, I, I hope you're lying to me. Well, it's, it's like you go into an interview, and they're like, uh, well, Mr. Dunn, why would you like to work for Merrill Lynch? Uh, what do you know about Merrill Lynch? I don't know anything about Merrill Lynch. I've done no research. None. I want to start with fresh slate. <laughs> I don't know much about the industry. I'm just here. I don't really have a mind for finance. I was a poetry major. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that one, that one is, uh, I mean, I, I, he obviously looked at film. Yep. He, he understands why he got the job. And I think you're right. Here's another one. Challenges on missing the spring, which of course is universal challenge for every program, but might hit Texas particularly hard because you've got a new defensive staff. Here's what old Chris Ash had to say. There are a lot of challenges basically being a new staff as we are on defense based on the current situation that we were dealt through the majority of the year. I can tell you right now where we're at today. I'm very pleased and actually pleasantly surprised where we are. I feel we are further along than, we, than what I thought we would have been in. Uh, credit to the players. Okay. I mean that- – that sounds good. Uh, th- that could go. Uh, he almost kind of phrases it or he, he sets it up to where it's, look, I'd like to be at a certain spot, but we're not there. But I'm happy with where we're at. Yeah. And, and also back to the point of watching film from last year. He's like, these guys were so remedial and so terrible on film that oh, I actually taught them a couple of basic concepts. And it's actually the product in the field has actually improved. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. They're flying around a little bit. Here's one thing that he said that I thought was key, and this is sort of dovetails. It's about an individual player, but also a unit. He said, we need to improve our pass rush production. Yes. Uh, Without getting guys trained during spring, I was really concerned about that. I think we've done a good job of picking up the slack and really developing some guys to be better pass rushers in the short amount of time they've been practicing. And then on specifically Joseph Osai, I think the bowl game against Utah probably showed some signs of what his future looks like. Okay, very nice. All right, well, that, that's an obvious tell. And it's not giving anything away because I don't think there's any offensive coordinator that, that felt like Joseph Osai was going to be covering as many wheel routes as he did last year. But you got to get him off the <laughs> edge. And it, it, he's almost saying that just to relax Texas fans. Don't worry. I mean, I'm going to get some of the easy things done. Well, as, as my brilliant partner, Kevin Dunn, observed, the worst thing Joseph Osai did last year was carry Jordan Whittington up the seam on a wheel route. I know. <laughs> Todd Orlando's like, wow, we, we've got an extra defensive back. I was so fired up about that because it showed versatility. I didn't realize how bad of a thing that was. Yeah. I never, also, I also, I, yeah, right. Yeah. I didn't expect the, the defensive coordinator 
to to take his best pasta chef to uh to to the salad area just because she, you know she showed she could actually do that at, at a Brazilian steakhouse. Right. Yeah. I'm like, come on, what are you doing <laughs> here, man? All right. Here is one area of concern that's legitimate. Uh. And I think it addresses a concern that is developing, and that's linebacker. As folks may know, DeMarvion Overshawn has been sitting out practices. He was also late uh, coming back to report to Austin. He's had some off-the-field issues. He's had some undisclosed illness or personal problems. He's been very active on social media, sort of depending on the day of the week. That's his opinion on playing or playing for UT or playing linebacker or playing safety. And uh, it reinforces a lot of what I've heard in terms of sort of immaturity. And so I think obliquely Chris Ash addressed that. Uh, He basically said that our overall freshman class of guys on the defensive side of the ball, I'm pleased with from the front to the linebackers to the back end. We have several guys that are going to contribute. And I I think he's specifically talking about the linebackers of the context of that, of that comment. Okay, so who do you think the line? What are you hearing about the linebackers right now, just with practice? I'm starting to think David Benda is going to play more snaps than we anticipated. Oh man! Well, um, it may not be bad. Um, uh, he's a pretty not... athletic guy. I understand he's he's pretty decent. And as we've discussed before, they are using the walk-on linebackers to sort of set the floor for that unit because they like guys like Jet Bush or you know Court Jack Hess, but. Obviously, we're not just interested in setting the floor. They want to explore the ceiling a little bit. But you need uh, willing football players to do that. And it's not clear that Mr. Overshawn's mind is right for football. Well, that's sad to hear. But I I understand your floor ceiling, especially the floor with the preferred walk-ons. you got to raise that. But that doesn't mean that guys like that should be starting. And if they are, you've kind of put yourself in that position at at that position. Yep, I think you're right. And then finally, we'll close with this. Ash on the spur position. And for those of you who need a little refresher on what that is, you're sort of a combo nickel linebacker, Mm -hmm. uh, more of a nickel than a linebacker. And in the old Orlando defense, I called that the super nickel because apparently you needed to be, oh, I don't know, uh, Ronnie Lott to play that position effectively for Todd Orlando. You had to be amazing against the run and be able to do single coverage on a slot receiver. Uh, Here's what Ash says on the spur position. It's one of the more difficult positions, in my opinion, because we're asking the guy to do. He's got to have a really unique skill set. He's got to be tough enough and physical enough to fit the run. He's got to be athletic enough and quick enough to play man-to-man on a slot. There are not a lot of guys who can do that. No, there's not, and I'm hoping Chris Adamora is that guy. I think Adamora has been penciled in there, but will he have answers for teams that will obviously try and scheme against that position? Yeah, and here's the good answer to answer your question. Here's what Ash finished with. I feel really good about where we're at right now with the position. I love the guys that we've been repping there. Okay. So Um. one thing that is helpful and I know Chris Adamora, particularly if you guys saw the roster weights, he's up to like 210, 212, something like that. Uh, and physicality, I don't think, has been an issue. He actually has pretty good range as well when we saw him playing a more traditional safety role. Obviously, the spur position is not that. But one thing to know about the structure of Ash's defense is that spur is backed more often than not by a safety. And so the basic 
the basic uh, defensive call, just to say a base defensive call for that, is if that slot carries up the field, like on a streak route, the safety got, has got him. He's yeah. not expecting the, per, the spur to turn and run with him for 30 yards, man-to-man. Okay. Man. okay. What he's saying is the spur's got to have that guy right off the line of scrimmage, but then he's also got to be rock-ribbed against the run and setting the edge, when, especially when you have a light box against like a three- or four-wide receiver set. And especially when they're running RPOs, which can put a lot of pressure on that position. A ton of pressure. I mean, RPOs, that is the thing that defensive coordinators pull their hair out about. And, you know, it's, I understand that people think, well, there's always been play action. Well, the RPO is sort of play action times 10, right? Yes. Yeah, no, that's exactly what it is. And, and if you've got a really smart quarterback, it can be at times almost impossible to defend and it puts so much pressure especially on those slot guys that are working across and then obviously if your main main responsibility is the run but also to carry that guy for a little while that's a pain in the ass man and there's, there's got to be some instincts involved and you got to really know your shit yep absolutely absolutely and you really have to play as a defensive unit right yes. you can't be yes. in silos you've got to be able to pass off receivers you've got to be able to play you know, people talk about man or, you know, are you, are you a man defense? Are you a zone defense? It's so blended now. You, you, if you're playing pure man-to-man, you almost have to have some zone principles underlying it. Yep. And at the same time, if you play pure zone, say you're Seattle, you got a lot of man principles underlying that. Yeah. Well, and it, it's, just, it's just this blended, amorphous kind of defense. And the number one thing I think – it's the hallmark of those successful secondaries at the college or NFL level. It's communication. It's clear understanding of the, what the offense is trying to do to you. And it's just having some really instinctive guys who understand how to play their positions and play within a team framework. And that's something, obviously, that allowed Chris Ash to become the new defensive coordinator at Texas because the previous regime was not getting that done. True, true. All right, what are you hearing? Uh, what kind of nuggets are you hearing, practice nuggets? Because I've heard – I'll just throw a couple out there. I've heard Marcus Washington has looked pretty damn good, and we, we kind of wonder about wide receivers, especially I don't know if you heard Tariq Black apparently is dealing with a groin issue, which is – Yes, he is. Just pull your hair out with that. I mean, not that it's uh, unexpected, but I hope he can give us something this year and, hell, maybe even next year considering the NCAA, what they came down with. We can maybe get into that a little bit, the, the extra year of a scholarship. Uh, but heard Marcus Washington's been good. I uh, heard really good things about Roshan, that Roshan maybe even be kind of separating a little bit right now. And then I do expect to see Alfred Collins, uh, maybe 25 snaps, 30 snaps on the defensive line a game. Mm-hmm. He's looked really damn good. And then who else? Uh, Actually, Broughton could be a guy who comes in, comes in and helps out as well. Maybe not as much, but expect to see him. Yeah, so what I've heard about Broughton, which was confirmed by what I watched on his high school tape, he is a very big man with little man skills. Hmm. And that is what makes him special and unique. You know, he's 290 plus pounds and he's mobile enough and quick enough to legitimately play defensive end. At the same time, he is not as physical as Alfred Collins right now. Right. And so that's got to progress. And I think particularly for Chris Ash, if you want that strong side defensive end setting the edge and, and bringing that level of physicality, despite his size, he may not excel at that. Plus, there's a the technique aspect to that. He's a true freshman, et cetera. But, yeah, I've heard good – they're excited about Collins and Broughton. Let's be clear about that. Uh, to add to your Marcus Washington thing, 
they really like Josh Moore. They have. That's why they fought to keep him on campus. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not to be cynical, but uh, if he didn't flash and show some ability, uh, I'm not sure he would have stuck around or been asked to stick around, but he did. And, uh, you know, he is skinny as a whip. He looks like one of those little whippets, those little mini greyhounds you yeah. see running around the parks. Right. And, uh, but he is elusive, and guys have trouble staying with him and in front of him. They just said he's just very difficult to get a piece of, and he's a very explosive athlete. If you, ever, if you look at him coming out of, of high school, he's one of these spark-type guys with a huge vertical leap and huge, you know, really low shuttle run, and he's just one of those guys that's very difficult to stay in front of. And he is cross-training, and because the, the fear, I think, Kevin, is that they have this huge log jam at slot mm-hmm. where three of their best four receivers are playing slot and sort of, you know, competing there. Well, move so what them. they're trying to do is diffuse that out and have Josh Moore and Jake Smith multi-train so they can play different spots. Yeah, I, they should. I mean, I feel like it was kind of getting back to last year where they were so stuck on a certain spot and really even a year before because they made that change with Colin and then made it with uh, little Jordan Humphrey. And it's like, you know what, we, we can we can cross-train these guys and make it a little bit more multiple as long as their skill set will match it. Yeah, I think that's correct. And look, I don't think anyone is super heartened by just looking at the raw experience level of this receiving core. But, you know, as we've kind of talked about before, if you've got the quarterback, if the offensive line plays pretty well, if the scheme is good, if you've got running backs, wide receiver is the one position where I'd want to say if I had to have inexperience but talent with the other supporting positions being good, I think I'd pick wide receiver. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, in terms of in terms of their depth, they they've got some numbers. I, I just don't know who all is going to be able to. I mean, in terms of numbers, they've got bodies on the wall or crap on the wall, whatever you want to say. I think there's talent there. I think it's more about Yersich kind of figuring out which guys fit into which roles. But maybe I'm being too optimistic about that. Yeah, I just think the offense. I think it's going to be fundamentally different. I think it's going to be an offense where they're throwing to the open guy and it's not going to be about feeding a certain player on certain routes. And Hey, there's nothing wrong with feeding Duvernay or, or Tylen Wallace or, or a player like that. Right. But you also want to run the offense, right. And you want to throw it to the open guy. And if you see a, a an offensive pass eligible guy with a lot of green around him, eh, just go ahead and throw it to him. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Spread it out and don't be as predictable as they were. Who else are you hearing about? Uh, you know what? That's what I've got so far. I think they've got some really interesting offensive line combinations that they've not figured out, uh, particularly on that right side of the offensive line. They're trying to figure out Okafor, Hook Finn, uh, Tyler Johnson, Christian Jones, and it's kind of an algorithm. It's a series of if-then statements. And it's a question of is Okafor purely competing at one spot or is he being used as the guy who is your utility guy who's going to give you a certain baseline level of play at either guard or tackle if some other guy doesn't step up? Yeah. It, so it, I, that, that was a long-winded way of saying if Hookfin doesn't step up at guard or if Christian Jones doesn't start up at, step up at tackle, pencil in Okafor. And then they're going to fill in around that. 
How how excited are you about? Because I've heard good things about Hook Finn that he's really athletic. I know Sam commented on that. We've seen some statements from people that have been watching practice. But uh, how excited are you about Jones? What have you seen from Jones on film that would make him a good tackle? Well, I mean, we a lot of with with Jones is conjecture. We've not seen a lot. The fact is, the guy looks like Tyron Smith for the Cowboys and pads. I mean, he is he is over three hundred pounds with a flat belly, <laughs> and he looks like a he was you know sculpted by Michelangelo. Mm-hmm. So I I think obviously there's that sort of piece where the guy just anytime you carry 305 like that, it's kind of exciting for an athletic tackle. And then he's a, a late to football kind of guy, late developer, played a lot of defense in high school, which always bodes well for athleticism. The question is just technical and, and its ability. And offensive tackle is such a technical, specific sort of position. And you know, as, as you know, if you watch the NFL, guys like Andrew Whitworth, who if anyone is watching Hard Knocks, and if you are, <laughs> God help you, because it's the most boring Hard Knocks I've ever seen in my life. But Andrew Whitworth can barely walk. Oh, and my God. The guy's it, it's tough to watch. Old. It's tough to watch. But you know what? He knows how to play tackle. And, and if he plays until he injures himself, he's going to be a passable NFL tackle off of pure guile and technique. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, you can even see him kind of cheating on stuff when guys are trying to get a uh, get the corner, get an edge rush. But, uh, yeah, so you think it's been that boring? It has not been great for that show. What I've realized, though, is they could put anything on that show, and I just like the format of it. Yeah, well, the cinematography is so beautiful, Yep. right? They have these incredible shots of, you know, they have the, the narrator, and then they, they focus in, and there's, like, one dew droplet on a blade of grass, and in the background, a guy is hitting, you know, going through the chute, and right. you're just like, oh. Yeah. It just, it's this evocative sort of just incredible show. The other thing that's interesting, man, is uh, Sean McVay, I, I have a lot of respect for his mind, and, and obviously he needs to sort of – rally a little bit because I think the NFL found him out a little bit, uh, which is to be expected, which yep. happens to everybody. He seems a little needy as a head coach. What do you think? Um, I think he's a very detail oriented, which is a good thing. I mean, you even yeah. saw on the last one where he's like, blow the horn and they blew the horn and it didn't blow that well. And he said, we need a new horn. Like, I mean, he's just obviously focused on everything. Yeah. He is a little needy. You can also tell that he's definitely still treating golf with kid gloves. I mean, even when he was screaming after golf threw a touchdown, so it was pretty obvious. He's screaming at the defense, and then he had to say, Jared, Jared, I mean, that was great. I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking to you. Well, yeah, no no shit you weren't. I mean, if he's – if Jared Goff is is worried about that, then I don't know. I'm I'm not sold on golf. Yeah, I I understand. Um, I am sold on the players and coaches' selections of girlfriends and wives, though. Yeah, no, I'm sold sold on his girlfriend – She's the real yeah. deal. I'm sold on his house and the little pitching green. Uh, you know what? If I knew this was good, that was going to appeal to anyone, I could picture Kevin Dunn sitting out in his backyard for about three hours every day on that pitching green. I know. And the funny thing is I don't even play that much golf, and I saw that, and I thought, oh, my God, that would be so great just to be able to chip there. And, and that it's elevated. It goes down to your putting green. That was good stuff. I'm a big fan of the man selections there, but uh, I'm a little uh, little worried. And also, I don't know if you saw the last one, but Aaron Donald, I think, had five sacks in that scrimmage. They weren't hitting the quarterback. Oh, my God. But their offensive line was garbage last year, 
and with Whitworth and those guys back, they look like they've got a couple 3A offensive guards. Oh, my God. They miss Roger Saffold so badly. Saffold's now with the Titans. He was instrumental to those those Ram, uh, those Ram offensive lines where Gurley was just going off. And holy cow, Aaron Donald was just toying with those guys. And yeah. I got to say, I, it's sort of like athletic porn. But watching Aaron Donald run dr- drills is ridiculous. Yeah. It, well, I mean, it, have you ever seen a guy that size move like that? No, I haven't. And I remember, I think it was a couple years ago when they, it was Fishers last year, three years ago maybe, when they, they had the Rams. We're not going to go freaking 8-8. Eight eight. We're not going to do it. Yeah, you probably won't because 8-8's <laughs> eight eight's good for you, Jeff. What a, what a joke. He had naked pictures on someone in the league. but he, Oh, he had a lot. But they're showing Donald just catching footballs one-handed and and running routes, and I thought, oh my god, yeah, the way he moves, I've never seen anyone that size, and he's gotten looks like he's gotten in better shape. How does a guy that size have a six-pack? Unbelievable. I mean, they're just when a guy is a genetic freak, he combines it with an elite work ethic. When he combines it with the best technique in the league, he's the most technical defensive lineman in the league. I mean, it's just the total package, and it's it's almost boring, and I understand why Stephon Gilmore was the NFL defensive MVP last year, but they gave, it's, it's a Michael Jordan thing, Kevin. When Michael Jordan didn't win the MVP, it's because of boredom yeah. from the writers, and they wanted some variety. Well, you, right? know, you know what it stood for, right? What's that? Michael's vice president. <laughs> there you go. That's what we called it back then. Hey, that same moniker can be applied to any time Aaron Donald doesn't win defensive MVP of the league because he's the defensive MVP of the league every year. Right, and, and that's also he's at a position, too, where he's getting doubled and tripled, but he's still, you know, that's one of those positions we talk about, and we saw it here with Puna at Texas, that you could have 16 tackles on the year and, you know, half a sack, and you could have been the most disruptive guy on that defense or maybe the most important. But he's, he, he still collects numbers to go with that. Yeah, I mean, he's incredibly disruptive. He's getting doubled. He's, he is the entire focus of the, the, pass, I mean, the pass blocking game plan, right? Yeah. Where's Aaron Donald? Here's what we're going to do with Donald. And, I mean, one thing that really uh, was interesting is a guy mentioned in passing, he was talking to a guard who had just gotten abused by Donald in that scrimmage. And he said, hey, man, you can't let him attack half your body. Yeah. And that is a really telling piece of advice because that's exactly what Donald does. And – What's interesting about that, Kevin, is that's a big part of not only playing defensive line, but also it's a big part of jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and wrestling, which is you don't fight the whole, your whole opponent. You pick a piece of his body to attack with your whole body. And if they're not able to defend that, that's how you're able to, to, you know, to crush them and to win. Same thing with defensive line play. You don't attack the whole guy in front of you. You pick a side and you put all of your strength and all of your, your power and all your technique on breaking one arm. And once you've broken that arm, you're getting to the quarterback. And their only option is to tackle you from behind and get a flag. So I just thought that was a very telling piece of advice. And it's a lot easier said than done because that guard, if you recall his face, <laughs> he was shell-shocked. Yeah. It was unbelievable. Right. He's like, trust me, I, I, I could have had my whole body in front of him. I'm not sure that would have done it, but I would have done that if I could. Yeah, he, he creates angles and creates leverage incredibly well. His body and skill set is, is uh, uh, fast twitch is already set up for that. So 
Yeah, he's, yeah. he's been fun to watch. I've still been watching that, though, man. Yeah, I, I watched the two. I power watched the first two episodes and fell asleep while doing it. And uh, a lot of it was a COVID infomercial, right, for the NFL. Yes. A little bit of propagandic. Uh, I understand why they're doing that. But, boy, it's just boring. And uh, I hope it picks up because hard knocks, there's been some very entertaining hard knocks. And uh, I'd like to see the product get a little more entertaining. But, you know, you're talking about angles. There is an angle for the national media, which sports media specifically, which has been somewhat irritating to, I think, both of us with regards to COVID. And they haven't just been calling balls and strikes, right? They've been a little bit alarmist. They've been editorializing. They've been, at times, even making up things. And one of the prime offenders, in my opinion, is Pat Forty. Have you been following him at all or found out, listened to anything he's had to say? I don't follow him on Twitter, but I've seen a couple of tweets retweeted, and I started to, to think what you were talking about. I thought, all right, this, this does seem like he's editorializing. And, and look, I mean, who knows how this is going to go, but uh, a little bit of I can't believe they're doing this vibe. Yes. How dare they? Yes. And how dare they expose these young gladiators right. to death and disease, to merely entertain people and pay for pay for rich alumni and and, and, and quickly the problem too is that these people that are doing that are also the first ones to retweet when when someone has a covid outbreak and you know it's like well you're not you're not tweeting texas or schools that don't have any like if you're going to report report both ways it does seem like you're this is where a lot of people think it almost feels like you're rooting to be right there is a numerator and a denominator and if you're only reporting the numerator, you're not doing your job. You should also be reporting the denominator. Right. Well, here's a tweet that caught my eye, and maybe this is the one you saw. I, I want you to react to it because it pisses me off, particularly because Forty has been the, the president of the playing football is going to kill everyone narrative. You know, So he tweets, Iowa just killed four sports, men's gymnastics, men's and women's swimming, diving, and men's tennis. Condolences to those athletes and coaches. Just brutal. I know. It's like, well, do you understand why a lot of us are fighting for the risk to be able to do this if the players want to do it? And once again, they can opt out and get their scholarship back and get another year. They're fine. They're going to still have those privileges. The reason a lot of people are fighting for it is because we understand the consequences and the economic consequences and the consequences for young kids out there that young athletes that you're so that you clearly are passionate about, then this was going to happen and it's going to happen a lot more. And when I read that, I thought Iowa losing those four sports. I'm surprised it hadn't happened yet. Well, of course. And at the same time, the guy has the nerve to make sympathetic noises about the predictable byproducts of his agenda. Yeah. Yes. I, I'm, I'm just, well fed up with these guys and uh i'd like to offer him a big dose of f off <laughs> i like that we need to have that uh maybe every show or yeah our, we'll, we'll our offer f a heavy off. dose of f off to someone we'll, they'll probably dominate most of the show knowing you and me yeah no joke all right so pat 40 gets that anything else with covid i mean oklahoma's had some problems i'm starting to to wonder just how much how much they want to play now i understand that you can't i guess you can control it to some degree but you're going to get some bad luck. But Oklahoma, or Lincoln Riley came out and said that I guess one of their position groups has just been devastated by it. 
Yeah, so they've moved some offensive linemen over in practice to defensive line just to be able to rep. Wow. So, yeah, I think that's that's a factor. And as you and I were hypothesizing last week, Lincoln Riley and OU sure seem to have a little agenda to not play. <laughs> and uh, now they're denying it, of course. Yeah. But, boy, the way they've been talking and the, they, the secret push and the calls they've been making to other Big 12 schools and to guys like Pat Forty, by the way, uh, I, I think it suggests that OU doesn't want to show the cracks in their armor, and they'd, they'd prefer to skip this year if they could. So, you know, plenty of time left for OU to recover and plenty of time left for them to be a factor in the Big 12. Obviously, they're not going away, but I think they see some vulnerabilities. I think they see some cracks, and I think it's messing with old Lincoln Riley's ego. Well, it, it would have been a perfect year for them to take the year off. I, I wouldn't count them out at all. They could have they could have 55 guys that show up, and I, I would still think Oklahoma has a chance to win the Big 12 because they've, they've done that consistently. I mean, hell, you wrote the article where, uh, saying they won with the Paul Thompson bobblehead. So, look, they, they've won it in many ways, but this would have been, I think, a convenient year just to regroup, gather up, and, and almost get everyone a redshirt year, get them up to speed. Well, and also, long before COVID, I think this is the part that's being missed, that OU team kind of went off the rails a little bit. They, they have multiple drug suspensions, and they've had you know, a little bit of bad luck with injuries and, and things like that. So I think they were already down some guys that they were really counting on, uh, particularly in the defensive line. And then when you rejigger the schedule and you don't get your appeals through the NCAA for your drug suspensions, and the, suddenly you're now playing Texas – uh, a, a bit earlier than you anticipated, right? A game earlier than you anticipated, at least a game earlier, then I think suddenly things are looking a little more bleak once you throw in some of the COVID positive tests. And, and I, just, I just think they're a little bit concerned. And, uh, you know, the folks trying to paint OU as, the, this, you know, they're actually doing this because they want to join the Big Ten eventually. And that, that's why they're making these, these noises. That's it's like, crazy. <laughs> it's just so stupid. That's crazy. They're they're assigning uh three-dimensional chess to checkers players. Yeah, no joke. I mean, uh, uh yeah, we don't even need to get to that. Hey, I know you had some Sam Ellinger stats. What do you got? I did. I actually wrote an article in Inside Texas talking about Sam Ellinger leveling up, and it just provides a little context of where he's been and what he's done here at Texas. And what leveling up in his fourth year should look like. But, you know, I'll just break this down. And you tell me if you can detect a trend line, Kevin. Okay. So, freshman year, Sam had six starts. He had a 124.1 passer rating. Sophomore year, 14 starts. A 146.8 passer rating. Junior year, 151.8 passer rating. Uh, Completions. Freshman, 57.5%. Sophomore, 64.7%. Junior, 652 Yards per attempt, the best measure of your ability to drive the ball down the football field. Freshman year, 7 yards per attempt. Sophomore year, 7.7 yards per attempt. Junior year, 8.1 yards per attempt. Total offense, rushing and passing combined. Freshman year, 2,300 yards, that's 255 yards per game. Sophomore year, 3,774 yards, that's 269.6 yards per game. Junior year, 4,326 total yards, 
That is a whopping 333.8 yards per game. Oh, I think do I see. Do you detect a trend from his <laughs> freshman to junior year, Kevin? I'm not great at this, but I think I do see a trend that Sam Ellinger has gotten better and better with more experience. That is correct. And, and he's gotten better tonight. everywhere, too. And you know what? I defended him a lot last year, and I know he he left the pocket clean left some clean pockets but that was after he had already been getting sacked like was going out of style so I understand a little bit of the leaving the pocket at that point but I thought that I thought I thought he played really damn well last year considering the offensive line and the the scheme he had around him I I agree 100% obviously I'm I'm a Sam Ellinger fan I believe he has simply been hampered by a poor supporting cast both uh, in terms of coaching and also by players around him. And I'm going to address that a little bit more specifically in a bit. But I want to address the bailing on clean pockets thing because it, it is a thing. Uh, but I don't think that was attributable necessarily to the offensive line or a lack of confidence in the offensive line. I think that had to do with the structure of the offense and what he was seeing immediately happening to the routes that his receivers are running as the play is developing. You mean the DBs were running it for him? The DBs were running it for him. They were squatting on routes. And you saw this repetitively by about midseason on in our offense. And the only way Sam can hit reset on that, because our receivers were not running option routes, right? The only way Sam can hit reset on a bunch of patterns that are going nowhere is to bail out of the pocket and create a scramble drill. Yeah, no, I think so. And, and yeah, and, and the scramble drill with him can turn into two things. In fact, we saw that last year. I think it was Iowa State where, I mean, you could tell a lot of the the passing plays that the Texas had going for him was Sam just playing backyard football. Yep. And so, but then you, you match that with a guy who can also run. And I didn't blame him when he was doing that. And especially in that game, I remember thinking, you know what? This is, this is our best chance considering the scheme we have. And Iowa State was clearly all over it early on. Yeah, and here's the other thing about supporting cast. I don't want to belabor the X's and O's piece, but let's just say we've got a brand-new offensive coordinator, brand-new wide receivers coach, uh, brand-new direction on offense for a reason. However, I want to just talk about pure talent. And one of the criticisms of Sam Ellinger is, hey, where are the championships? Where are the wins, right? Because there's a belief that the quarterback is singularly responsible for the the record of your football team. Yeah. Uh, Would you care to guess? How many offensive players in his three years as a starter at Texas, how many offensive players have been drafted in the NFL and his supporting cast? Ooh, God. Uh, mm, I'm going to say three, four, three. I'll go three. Nailed it. Is that it? Three. That's pathetic. Connor Williams, yeah. second rounder. Right. Devin Duvernay, third rounder. Colin right. Johnson, fifth rounder. Those are the three I could think of. Ellinger and Connor Williams only shared five starts. Wow. Okay. 15% of Sam's career, and that was all when he was a freshman. Yeah. And, so, and the other thing, too, is that it's one of those where the rest of the line wasn't that great. So it's not even one of those where you go, you know what? He had – like major in '98, he had a sure. he, he had a veteran, really good as a unit and individually offensive line. No, we just had a first or second round pick with a bunch of guys who couldn't really play. Yeah, and that first or second round pick uh, didn't play. He played in five games. Yeah. So, 
to give you a little comparator, Alabama had 10 offensive players drafted over the same time period. Six of them were first-round picks. And you're saying 10, 10 offensive guys, right? 10 offensive guys. No, if you include defense, yeah. it's in the 20s. I was but about to say. 10 offensive guys. Six of those offensive players were first-round picks. We're talking about names like Calvin Ridley, Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, Herb Smith, a pair of first-round offensive tackles in Jedrick Wills and Jonah Williams. That's not to mention the fact that, Kevin, they have a junior, Jalen Waddell, and a senior, Devontae Smith, both of whom will be first-round picks, in addition to Alex Leatherwood, left tackle, who will be a first-round pick in 2021. Yeah, he had four – Alabama pretty much, and you could say Tua had four first-round picks to throw to, and five if you want to count Herb Smith, who they didn't utilize until I think the national championship game or semis. Well, for the last three years – Alabama at any given time had about six future or current first rounders surrounding their starting quarterback. Unbelievable. And Sam Ellinger had Colin Johnson and Devin Duvernay, a third rounder and a fifth rounder. Yeah. Now I think the thing that is looking up a little bit, I wouldn't say 2020 is exactly flush with pure elite NFL projectable talent, but we know Sam Cosby's going in the first round. That's great. The running backs are the best unit of the Herman era by a country mile. Yep. Wide receiver, there's a lot of raw talent, uh, if not experience. And there's probably not a lot of experience. But uh, I just think that this is also Herman year four. And so if you've recruited well and you've, you've addressed some of the development at least, then you should have some surprise breakout guys who will be legitimate NFL players either in 2021 or at a future time, which I think also counts, right? If Junior Engelau ends up being a third-round draft pick when he does come out, then that's helpful that that guy's on the field even as a, you know, as a, you know, two years out from the draft. Yeah, without a doubt. No, I mean, look, the talent is getting better, and that's also why it'd be fantastic. I mean, if Sam, I obviously want Sam to have a really good year, but if he decides to come back next year, this team could really be special. The offense could be. Why would he come back next year? Uh, because there's still questions about him as a pro quarterback, and those are those are out there, and I'm not sure what's going to answer that this year. I, but I, we have seen multiple guys who were third to sixth round grades as a junior play themselves into the first round, right? Yeah, yeah no, and I've seen just as many, if not more, stay at that level, and I've seen a lot of them that I think I thought would have played themselves into that, and I'm scratching my head and some pro scout doesn't like something or multiple pro scouts don't. I know it just takes one, but I think he loves Texas that much. I think it kind of depends on how the year goes, not only for him individually, but obviously as a team. And those two things will go together hand in hand. Yeah. Selfishly, I would welcome him back. The, it seems unlikely, but the one persuasive argument for his return would be that the 2021 NFL draft class at quarterback is stacked. Yes. Yeah, no. It, because it, they are expecting, obviously, uh, Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields. Trey They're going to be probably 1-2 or maybe 1-3, depending on Panay Sewell at Oregon. But Trey Lance, uh, he's getting increasing run as a potential top five pick. He is, and he's been getting it. You know, no interceptions last year. He's at North Dakota State. They've got one game that he's going to play in October, and that'll be it. I mean, that, that's your order in terms of quarterbacks, and 
And then Sam is battling with the Jamie Newmans, the Brock Purdy's, guys like that. Tanner Morgan at Minnesota. Tanner Morgan's another one. Uh, and then and so, Sam Howe won't be eligible, and Slovis won't be either. But uh, but th- those guys will probably be for the next year. I do think the next year, 2022, at least looking at it right now, is going to be an easier quarterback draft to enter. Yeah, and not only that, I think we've repeatedly seen in the NFL that they don't alter – I mean, I should say they do alter their draft grades based on desperation, meaning if you have a really weak quarterback class, they still find a way to elevate a bunch of those guys into the top 10. Mm-hmm. See Mitch Trubisky, right? right. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, I mean, the, they oh. are going to find something to have their scouts tell them, oh, yeah, this guy's the, you know, the best in the draft, and they don't control for quality, and that's how you end up with Christian Ponder. <laughs> right going yeah. in the in the early first round and in any other in a other strong draft class people would laugh at the idea of that happening but the fact is the nfl will talk themselves into drafting a quarterback more than any other position i was waiting for it with justin herbert and we talked about uh hard knocks earlier i i look i've always loved his skills i i don't think he's got the everything that's inside and leadership upstairs he's smart as shit but the, the football kind of want to and I, I just I, we're seeing it on hard knocks I know it's still really early but I knew people would talk themselves into him and someone did yeah they sure did and he throws a gorgeous football really as, does as they, multiple guys were commenting but uh the dude sporting a headband that's uh, gonna be a strike against you there Justin or how, how about whenever it was I think it was Lynn who said hey man you know Whenever you got the football in your hands, we got a chance to really do something special. And he gave like the all shucks, uh, something like an eight-year-old would give. He goes, "Oh, get out of here!" And I thought, "Oh God, that's not what you say." To yeah, he almost he it's like that. he was going to give him a noogie. Yeah, send him on his way. Like, come on. Yeah, man. that was uh, he that seems, was a weird he, reaction. It was not real alpha. No, he seems really nice, and unlike a lot of the alpha quarterbacks that are in the, in the league, he'd probably be a fun guy to go get dinner with. But it's not what I'm looking for with my quarterback. Yeah, I'm looking for something south of Baker Mayfield cockiness, <laughs> yes. but north of Justin Herbert humility. Yes, exactly. Uh, some, <laughs> somewhere around there. It's pretty, you probably just gave Drew Brees or something like that. Yeah, that's, exa- that's exactly it. That's really good. Um, hey, one more thing I wanted to touch on. I wanted to get your thoughts on this. The Texas Athletics announced their Hall of Honor class. Yeah. And it features some of my favorite players in the history of Texas sports. And I wanted to touch on a few of these guys because we love our nostalgia here, particularly when it's nostalgia. But this is uh, hornstalgia. I know who so, you're. I know who you're going to say to start off with. Rick Bradley, right? Rick Bradley, great baseball player in the '70s. <laughs> who I don't know who that is. Uh, Maybe you'll tell us. He was a badass, and he he definitely deserves to uh, deserves to be on this list. And it should have come sooner. That's good. That's good to hear. Special selection, Tom Penders. Oh, my God. <laughs> I wa- so, obviously, DeLoss has no say in this anymore. Yeah, pretty clearly that he's been put out to pasture. And also, Tom Penders sued the university. I so know. I'd say this is rather big of the University of Texas, don't you think? Yeah, I do, too. Well, if they're going to bring in Tom Penders, they can get rid of their issue with Jeff Ward because he was giving opinions on the radio. Get him in there, you know? Uh, I boy, I agree with that 100. Uh, percent I know that hits close to home as a guy who gives opinions on the radio. So right, uh, P- 
Contenders, look, uh, let's give credit where it's due. He ushered in an era of a more, you know, more abundant Texas dead basketball program under Weltlick and, and some of those guys. And he really made it an entertaining product. Yeah, he did. And, uh, I think, you know, when you go through like a Hall of Fame, if there's a Longhorn Hall of Fame and Penders is in it, they should have his little kiosk with some of his, like, the, you know, the Elite Eight run and all that, the BMW, all that stuff. And then they should have uh, Brandy Perryman's answering machine. oh wow i don't know if you and i had ever even talked about that you obviously know the story though there 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 are some pender stories man i i have heard some of the messages on brandy perriman's answering machine and uh you're kidding me tom penders like to slug back a few and give his players a call and critique their performances you're kidding me you actually heard the messages i have heard I have heard the messages, and I'll just leave it at that. That is fantastic. Well done, yeah. sir. Well done. Well, there are a couple of basketball guys that I really liked. I'd say probably the second best point guard. I mean, look, you can argue that. I love Travis Mays. Um, we've had some some damn good players. Johnny Moore was a guard. Joey Wright. Joey Wright. Uh, but DJ Augustine, to me, is behind TJ. DJ Augustine was was fantastic and still playing right now or was playing with Orlando. Absolutely. DJ Augustine, first of all, uh, not six feet tall, not six foot one, no. as he's sometimes optimistically listed, about 5'10". Yeah. And purely off of handle, ball handling, leadership, and the ability to shoot the ball, the guy has crafted out a 14-year NBA career, and he was a damn good college point guard. He was a really good player, had great pace, just had a good feel. As you mentioned, the handles and then could shoot the shit out of it. Uh, he he deserves to be on here. Yeah, absolutely. And then maybe one of my favorite UT basketball players of all time, PJ Tucker. Of course. I mean, anyone who could have played football here has to be one of your favorite basketball players. But look, he's a guy who getting ready for what game five now, and he's carved out a really nice career. And really, I think really started that with Phoenix. But he was a guy that that looked like it wasn't going to last in the league for very long, if he was going to last in there even for a year or two. And it's been pretty nice to see his style of ball work on some of these teams. Yeah, playing small ball, power forward and center, and holding his own, tough as hell, really developed the ability to shoot, handle the ball, always been just a team guy. He'll do anything to help you win, very good defender. And, yeah, I mean, to your point, he was out of the NBA and he was trying to rebuild his career overseas and not by the way, playing for elite teams in Europe. He was, he was playing in China and Russia and sort of these off brand third tier uh, leagues. He built himself back. He built himself up. And I'll tell you one thing about PJ Tucker, a great dude bleeds burnt orange. And uh, one thing, there's a lot of uh, hold me back fights in the NBA. You know, the, the fake guys like the talk, and uh, then it's like, hold me back, hold me back. Uh, P.J. Tucker doesn't need to be held back or want to be held back. He is, he's a dude that it's known in the NBA. He, he's more than happy to meet you in the parking lot after the game if you want to sort something out. And uh, no one ever takes him up on his offer. I've got to say, I, I can't think of many guys in the NBA that, that would do that. Uh, hopefully, hopefully they're smarter than that. Glad to see he got in. I forgot, I, hell, I forgot five minutes after we did it what our tight end list was. But we both had David Thomas won, right? We sure did. Yeah, David Thomas, another one of the inductees to the Longhorn 
Hall of Honor, uh, Athletics Hall of Honor. Uh, I mean, his resume doesn't need to be extolled. It's virtues. Jordan Shipley also joins him. Uh, I think people, he's either the best or the second best receiver in the history of Texas football. I, I think he's the best. I, I really do. Well, don't bury the lead. We're going to still do the top five Texas receivers all time. So. Okay, I was going to ask you. Yeah, yeah, okay, well, I think he's right up there. No, I mean, he, for me, in terms of just production on the field, he's also a guy, we talked about PJ with his pro career. I kind of wondered early on just if we were ever going to see him here with the injuries. Yeah, I mean, talk about a deep sleeper. Uh, this is a guy who played six years at Texas. He uh, missed two entire seasons before he even took a snap. And then he played two seasons where he was like a 400, 500-yard receiver, kind of a middling contributor. And then he had a two-year breakout, which was as impressive as anything that's ever happened at the University of Texas. And had a mind meld with Colt McCoy that was ridiculous. And uh, I... I have not seen a more effective college receiver, and I know that was a, a piece of that offense and, and his skill set, and it didn't necessarily translate to the NFL, and I think injuries played a role in that. But, boy, Jordan Shipley, uh, you put him on this Texas team in 2020, and I'll, I'll be happy to put all the chips in the middle of the table and say we're winning the Big 12. Yeah, oh, yeah. There's so, there was something about him, and he, he, he would have had a great uh, a great synergy with Sam as well but he was a good punt returner good kick returner and you you didn't realize that he would have had knee injuries when you saw him running his junior or senior year and also think about the Rose Bowl game national championship game against Alabama when you got Garrett Gilbert throwing him footballs and he was getting double cover double covered almost on every play and it didn't matter I mean Saban knew no. Saban knew who the guy was to stop at that point he just couldn't yeah um, if you're given a choice and people use them interchangeably, but you know, they're really kind of different things given a choice on a football field between pure speed and pure quickness, pick pure quickness every day of the week. And, and to me, that's Jordan Shipley's game. Yep. Uh, no. I have never seen a slicker, quicker guy in a small space at the college level playing for Texas. And he embarrassed and humiliated so many defensive backs. And uh, it was just fun to watch. And, uh, you know, just he's just such a sophisticated, quick guy. And he could just turn DBs around and spin them like a top and make them look absolutely foolish. Just like another guy who's going in the Hall of Honor, Jamal Charles. Oh, man. We're actually going to talk with him today, 4 o'clock. Uh, when you're listening to this, it'll probably be after that. But you can go back to hornfm.com. And, awesome. Yeah, so we're going to have him on in, in – Damn, he's one of those guys that I still wish we would have gotten we would have fed him more earlier on his in his career here. Now, look, his freshman year, Texas was loaded. They had Selvin Young, they had Ramont Taylor, you had oh yeah, the other guy, Vince Young in the backfield. But Jamal, we kind of saw him as the years went on when they started to feed him more. Was that his junior year, Nebraska here in the second half when they finally gave him the football? Yeah, they realized Jamal Charles was good, and yeah. then he finished that game, that half, with 200-and-something yards rushing. Unbelievable, man. <laughs> and then he finished the year with something like, I don't know, he's averaging like 180 yards rushing a game over the last six and just completely dominated. And uh, it had been there all along. It just was waiting to be discovered. So, uh, yeah, Jamal Charles, I think you know how I feel about him. And we've got a top five Texas all-time running backs podcast hitting – someday soon and uh 
I have a very high opinion of Jamal Charles in the historical pantheon of Longhorn running backs, and I'll just leave it at that. Leave it there. All right, before we get out of here, how can people find out more about Texas football? The ultimate preview, where do they go? You just need to go to Barkin Carnival. I've got that uh, if you want to buy it. Uh, you want to read a lev- where it's available to buy, you can go to Barkin Carnival's resource or just go to Amazon. Order the paperback. It'll be in your hands within 48 hours. You could also buy it on the e-reader on your Kindle or go to Smashwords. I get a little better taste of that uh, because it's an independent publisher. And uh, it's very easy to download on any sort of device. It's also available on Apple. Look, I just want you guys to go buy it and read it. It's still completely valid and viable for all of our Big 12 opponents and, of course, UTEP. And uh, I believe it is going to do the best to inform you about this UT football team and, more importantly, our opponents and what happened last year. Because I think a lot of people, uh, there's been a lot written about what happened last year, but I don't think that there's a single volume which really collects exactly why we have a new coaching staff and the reasons why specifically what went wrong on defense, what went wrong on offense, when the when we played teams with a pulse on de, you know defensive teams with a pulse and uh if you really want to understand why this evolution in the staff and, and tom herman in year four i think this book is the best resource to inform you on that as well as the 2020 season terrific stuff as always man we are officially over the hump right now we'll talk to you next week yep absolutely y'all take care